You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. This is from the prologue in the voice of Michael, the eldest brother. Hello. You've reached the voicemail of Dr. Walter Benjamin. I am currently out of the office. If you are one of my patients, please leave your name, a very brief message, and your telephone number, even if you think I already have it, as it may not be handy. I will return your call as soon as possible. Please note that I am out of the office on Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and that any messages left on those days will be returned on the following Monday. If this is an emergency, and you have gone on holiday by accident with your younger brother in the hopes that you may finally tear your eyes away from the scenes you have been fixedly contemplating your entire life, but find instead that a storm blowing in from paradise has become caught in your wings so that all you can see is the wreckage of the past piling up before you one single catastrophe with no future, then please hang up and contact my answering service. Finally, if this is about a refill for a medication you require in order to survive, and you have some concern that your request may not reach me in time, and it seems likely that the words you are about to speak into this machine will be your last, then please know that you tried very hard indeed, and that you loved your family as deeply as you could. Adam Hazlitt is the author of the short story collection, You Are Not a Stranger Here, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in the National Book Award. He also wrote the novel Union Atlantic. His new novel is Imagine Me Gone. Thank you for joining me, Adam. Thanks for having me. This is a really wonderful and stunning family epic. When did you, I guess, in your mind, first meet this family? Well, it's the most personal book I've written. So I have, in a sense, borrowed more material from my own family than I have in anything in the past. So I suppose I met them a long time ago (laughs) on the one hand. But it's very much a work of fiction. So I needed to liberate myself from the literal facts of my own past pretty early on to try to get at the kind of imaginative, sort of like counterfactual history, the a history of a family that, uh, in which I'm writing more about what might have been and what, what I needed to imaginatively work out than a memoir. So it's told from five points of view, and it's very much kind of a choral piece composed of those voices. It's a personal alternate history. Well, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I it, like that idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it is, um, I mean, my father killed himself when I was 14, and, you know, that much uh, is, is sort of an autobiographical fact. But so, you know, the, the experience with mental illness is, is definitely um, personal. And what I was, uh, the challenge that I had in writing the book was figuring out how to put these five voices on the page in a way that was distinct from one another, certainly, but also had a kind of musical relationship to one another because it is, after all, a family. I think one of the things that it, the you just mentioned this and a challenge that you meet very well is creating these voices. And it's not just a group of five separate voices in one time and one time of their lives, it's a group of five people who are growing older over a span of, you know, 40 years. This is a big challenge because we meet some of these kids, people when they are just children and they eventually become as much adult as is possible for any of one of them. And as you uh, wrote the book, did you uh, compartmentalize each character and follow them by themselves, or did you write them, weave as you wrote? I, I It was more the latter, weaving as I wrote, because I feel as though I always need to know exactly where the reader is in relation to everything that's come before, so I don't write out of sequence much. I mean, I did go back and insert certain chapters in places where I thought that more was needed, but I wanted to have that sense of forward motion based on where the reader was in relation to each of these people. So it's a 
the progress of it is really kind of an emotional and psychological progress through their experience. But you're right that the the because it covers 35 years and how these siblings struggled to take care of mostly their older brother, Michael, I did have to subtly sort of age the voice in which they were speaking. I thought you did a, a wonderful job. Let's kind of talk about the family and, and the Let's talk about the father, John, and his wife, Margaret. These are really wonderful and powerful characters. And when we, we Margaret knows that when she marries John, that there's a, a bit of a risk there. And I thought you carried off her calculations well. And I think that this is something that we don't often see is this idea of how we when we meet people, it's almost um, we do some kind of almost uh, emotional math, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a the a sort of er moment in the book is when she discovers that her fiance is been hospitalized for depression and has to decide whether to go forward with the marriage. I mean, this is comes in a bit of a flashback. She's remembering that moment, and it's that kind of first act of of devotion and love and complexity, but decision to move forward even despite that complexity, that is the sort of origin of the family, because obviously if she decided differently, there wouldn't be a family. And, and you know, something, all kinds of psychic pain, anxiety, depression, they can, they, they are cyclical, they can wax and wane over the course of a person's life. And that's true in this case with the, the father, John. And so you do see the mother watching him, and he's fine for many years, but somewhat warily as to whether this whether this cloud can return. You mentioned a word complexity, and I think that that a notion ripples throughout this book in terms of the way the emotional relationships are. I think another aspect that's really clear here is how tentative everything is. I mean, everybody in this book throughout their lives, they're, they're walking on eggshells. And I think that this is becoming more common, not less, and to a large degree, to our emotional and mental health detriment. Uh-huh. I mean, I guess what there's a, I mean, one of a f- frequent reaction to a traumatic event is to become sort of hypervigilant, um, mm. to be always in a kind of fight or flight mode the one of the reviews for the book was headline constant emergency <laughs> um and i think that's a state that um certainly the oldest brother michael finds himself in and so there is i think in any in any uh, situation where there's a lot of strain and stress the all of the sympathetic energies are raised up in people and it can be wearing, and and one of the one of the themes of the book is, you know, how far will you go to save someone you love? Because it's not like a discrete episode. I mean, something like having suffering from anxiety or depression. There are things that go on for a long time over the course of a life, and people, the family's reactions to it vary, uh, as do the individuals. I think um, one of the things that's you manage in this book very beautifully. I think a lot of this is down to your prose and your sentences, which are really sparse and, and carved out of wood in a sense, is to write about things that are where the characters are enervated, they're upset, they're angry, they're worried, they're sometimes they're in love. There are moments of grace, to be sure, um, in a manner that the reading experience the experience for the reader does not have to mirror the emotional experience of the characters. And that's an, that's an interesting notion, that divide, because we read, want to read this book and enjoy it. We don't want to read this book and necessarily live through these events. Yeah. Well, I think for me, the key to that is, is really throughout the book is, the, is capturing the kind of hilarity and absurdity and, you know, some of the humor of, of the situation. So, I mean, there's a lot of the book that's actually quite uh, light, I mean, in the sense of being parody-like and getting at circumstances where families often laugh in the most desperate circumstances. So, 
Michael gets a lot of parodies. He 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 parodies a psych intake form. He parodies a, a, the description of a family therapy session as a military after action <laughs> report. Um, so he goes through a number of these things, um, and I think. It was, for me, in the writing of the book, almost a necessary relief. But also, I think I knew I needed a way to capture for that character, who becomes, in a way, the central character of the book, affected as he is by his father's death, the absurdity and the um, the the frenetic energy and uh, inventiveness that can sometimes go along with, with anxiety. Well, too... Humor is our one of our best coping mechanisms. I think you do a good job at modulating this. Did this just happen naturally as you write, or did you have to go back and kind of ratchet stuff back or maybe notch it up a bit? Um, well, I, when I came upon the idea of these forms that Michael would use, I mean, the one I read is, you know— a, is a takeoff on a doctor's answering machine that we've all heard, you know, except just taken a little further. <laughs> um, and the psych inform form, uh, the psych intake form that I mentioned is, you know, he fills out the answers far f- longer than anybody would and gives a lot more background. So that stuff, I, I think once I had that, it was, it's like any voice, it began to be generative. It suggested more of itself. For me, it was sort of liberating because I could let my imagination kind of run wild. And they were actually the most pleasurable and entertaining, even for me, kind of chapters of the book to write. So they were they were a relief, even though they're describing some sometimes some sort of desperate circumstances. Uh, they're they're really fun for the reader too. I think that makes it. It's it's. I always look forward to whenever Michael is going to come up. And uh, there there's one uh, sequence where uh, he where it, he's relating what happened and it kind of modulates in and out of like a, a almost hallucinatory parts i think that that is like so much fun you're going wait wait a sec <laughs> well the, the the letters from the ship at the beginning uh-huh. where he's uh describing a, cro- a transatlantic crossing and donna summer is the main stage entertainment and the his youngest brother has gone missing for days on the ship. I, eventually, the reader gets the sense that this is uh, figments of his imagination. But that playfulness is part and parcel over the course of the book of plagues him. I think mm. that's the twin thing. The, the the inventiveness is one side of what is a kind of energy that he can't really turn off. Exactly. Well, yeah. And well, this when you feel this way, when you have all those kind of imaginative, creative emotions, sometimes you can channel them into something that's kind of fun for you and and fun for those around you. And other times, it just becomes very problematic. And Mm -hmm. and when it kind of gutters down into this obsession, which is the the flip side. And when we see that, it, it it's compelling, but it's also very sweet. So talk about, I mean, his obsessions with the and his worries, which mm-hmm. are equally over the top to his parodies, mm-hmm. um, are also um, engaging to read. Well, I'm glad to I'm glad to hear that. I mean, there, I think what I wanted to do in those sections was put often the in his um, most obsessive moments you're hearing them through the lens of what his brother or his sister like mm-hmm. when he's romantically obsessed and speaking to his sister on the telephone and so that's where i was wanted to get at this dynamic that comes up with siblings where i think we you know obviously ineluctably have some kind of love and connection to our siblings and you want to help them. And yet the way that you want to help them, it reflects how you see them in the world, not necessarily how they see themselves. Mm. And there can be a, there can be a disjunction there that is ultimately sort of painful and difficult because we want to help people, but in the it's based on the kind of person we want them to become. Mm. And that's a disjunction that I think plays out in families a lot. I, it was also really nice to see uh, a family rendered in, in which at first they're children, but we do get reached the point where we have four 
you know, three adult siblings and the, and the mother and, and, you know, this relationship between adult children and their parents. The, the later sections where we see Margaret and, and especially when they have that uh, dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think that those are really beautifully, beautifully done. Uh, And this kind of, uh, I think it's really an underexamined relationship in the literature and in our culture, because most of us are adults and most of us now have, just because of our longevity, our parents are still alive, and and yeah. as we have to get along as adults, and that's not easy. No, no. I mean, in that actually, that chapter you mentioned, that where where Margaret, the mother, is in in the restaurant with her three kids, it's one of those places. It's narrated from Margaret's point of view, so it's the mother, and she's with her kids, and she sees them and understands them in ways that. Again, they don't necessarily understand themselves anymore. And she says something along the lines of, they are their natures, uh, but they would shout me down for saying that because they want to, obviously, like any any child, eventually they grow older and, and individuate in some way. But she has this sense of them, which is not untrue, but is, again, partial, that they reflect the people they were when they were young children, that they, they that the core of who they are is still reflected in who they've become. And that's, it's very tender because she loves them enormously, but there's also a poignancy to it because they're, she can't help them in the ways that she would want to be able to in their adult lives. It's, she's, both clued in and somewhat clueless about them at the same time. And I think, too, this really gets at this notion and helps to decimate it, the, the false notion that children grow up <laughs> and move move out of the house and they're no longer your children. That's just absolutely not the case. They are your children from the day they are born until <laughs> the day you you ascend to a better place. <laughs> Yeah, no, it is. It is the long span of of the life as a parent from from Margaret's point of view. I mean, she um, she has to watch, particularly in the case of Michael, the suffering of her of her child. Um, uh, and you know, he comes back and lives with her and goes through some very difficult times. And I wanted to get a bit too at the powerlessness that you can feel as a family member mm. dealing with someone who has a problem that's seemingly intractable. Also, I think in some ways a friend of mine said the other day when they read the book, they said, well, you know, it's a love story. It's just a love story of a family who love each other. And it is true that it's very much a portrait of people who are trying their best. Mm. Um, so in that sense, it's not a, a dysfunctional family in the in the sort of sense we often or you know frequently see and hear and read about no no i think this is a a family that's functioning as best it can and i think you made a really important uh uh point because as much as we hope that people will change and as much as you know we posit that they'll change in some ways they absolutely won't and in fact can't change and that's something that the parents and the family can see in the siblings, the mother can see it in the children, and the children can see it in one another and in the mother, that these changes of maturing and stuff, in certain ways, it's just not going to happen. And so they have, in some ways, are better equipped to deal with this kind of behavior where somebody outside the family might say, well, see somebody and get get that get that done. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think there's a, there's a, a double edge to that because the the form of the ways we try to help members of our own family or people we're the closest to uh, also reflect what we need that person to be because we're not, we're hardly neutral. And uh, we need something from that person. A sibling needs something from their older brother or their younger brother. And parents need things from their own children. And so a lot of the portrait in the book and the the, the movement between the characters is the push and pull between what they need from that other person while they're trying to help them. And that itself can be a kind of distortion. You know, they don't, 
they don't necessarily see the other person for their own need for them. Mm, that's that's a really interesting point. You said this is uh, your most personal book. Um, as you were writing this, did you find yourself having to, um, as you and considering your own family, was your own family built the same way? Uh, mother, father, three yeah, children. The, the 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 outline is the same. Yeah. Um, as you wrote this, uh, I'm wondering how you handled that em- emotionally. This must have been, uh, you know, a kind of a, a tough form of therapy in a way. It sounds like something a doctor might ask you to do. <laughs> well, um, I mean, in the end, I am, I mean, what I do every day is write sentences. I mean, that's mm-hmm. why I why I write. And so what I'm trying to do is create, as I said, uh, a music for each of these characters. Um, I think a, a great deal of my emotion gets expressed in that music and sort of worked out. But it's a communicative endeavor. I'm trying to create an experience for the reader that's using my experience, but that's giving it some kind of shape, which is the the art of it, hopefully, to allow other people who know nothing of me or my family or what what's fiction and what isn't to come away from it having had some experience themselves of of these characters and thus uh, often of what's come up in their own lives so i've found that a lot in the so far being out in the world with the book that it seems to elicit from people reactions and thoughts and everything about their own families' experiences with these sorts of things. I will say that for me, one of the most pleasurable experiences, this was your your playlist, so to speak. <laughs> I have to say, it mirrors mine so much. I mean, you hit it, Joy Division, Ultravox, Vienna. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, Human League, all the way down. These, these are the bands that are like actually on my iPod and in my various mixes right now, and including the Detroit sound, the, the techno sound. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. A, these days, I'm a big fan of Richie Houghton and as who Plastic Man, who was one of the uh-huh. original guys out of that. Was this your music as well? Uh, it was my music, some of it, my brother's music. I mean, there's a... There's a bunch of it that was just sort of floating around in the house. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Michael, the character, is, is a kind of musical obsessive who who evangelizes about this music. And one of the satisfying things, we're doing radio so the, the listeners can't see this, but the, uh, the cover of the book is the typeface on the cover is actually the typeface of New Order's first album. Oh, really? And it, I, it, it yeah, has Peter a Peter Saville look. Yeah, it has a, it, he, it has a Peter Saville look and the factory records. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was sort of satisfying to me. And also because it's, it's only text. Mm-hmm. And as someone who is a writer, like I'm working in text. And so the, the fact that the cover could, um, could transmit some of that emotion by leaving out these letters and having a kind of ghostly aspect um, in the black and white was sort of satisfying. Uh, I thought it was uh, the cover. I thought did think was really good. And I hadn't thought about the the new order connection, but yeah, it makes yeah. perfect sense. <laughs> um, there are so many like you talked about the sentences, and I think there are so many beautiful sentences and beautiful scenes in this book. There's one point where uh, Michael's reading Thomas Mann, and, and uh, he's talking to his mother, and and he says uh, he asks her, uh, "Did it smell?" And, and and I just thought it, that's such a great cap. That's the main thing I remember out of Death in Venice was uh-huh. was how well he described the smells in the city, and I thought that was a really nice uh, touch. Yeah, yeah. Well, it 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 was. Um... One of the ways in which I sort of gave myself permission, I mean, these are the people in the book are readers. I mm. mean, they're reading books and they think about their lives at times in relation to books, which is just, it's strange how often in novels the, the, the people don't read. You mm. know I mean? um, and so I, I didn't hold back in terms of just reference and allusion to other, other literary sources. Um, and that was actually one of the pleasures of it. 
And, and also, too, uh, these characters spent it some time in, in Britain. And, and mm-hmm. at one point, uh, you uh, say that he's very British about it. And <laughs> I thought that was a really great description, uh, a, a nuanced description, that, a, a concise way of saying something that's very complicated. You spent time in uh, Britain, too, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I lived there as a boy. I went to sort of the equivalent of, like, fourth through sixth grades there. So, you know, and my father was English. So I think in that particular moment, that phrase, I'm sort of referring to a certain kind of emotional reserve that mm-hmm. that the father has, a, a sort of reluctance to articulate things about emotional life, which, because of his condition gets exploded, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, the that's I think, one of the strains and stresses that gets played out across the book is that the cultural command to keep things inside and keep a certain kind of decorum just falls away because of the extremity of what they're experiencing. You know, too, you write at one point, it's in motion that Americans remember. Story is always motion and versus events which happen in isolation. So I thought you did a good job of conveying that and and crafting a beautiful story out of sub stories. I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it, it's not. I, I think the my my intent was that the reader not experience it as a that they experience the forward motion as the forward motion of these characters' emotional and psychic kind of needs and necessities, mm-hmm. not so much in the form of a plot in the traditional sense. I mean, one of my, you know, Virginia Woolf is one of my influences, certainly. And, you know, you move through a Woolf book knowing everything you need to know while out, without ever necessarily knowing what's happening in terms of the, a plot. You know, you, you just, you're taken by the details into the life of the character and what you follow is the development of their spirit, in essence, more than the whodunit. Mm-hmm. And so there are definitely discrete events here in the way that the troubles of Michael's life kind of build over the course of the book and people have to react more to them. But because it's always narrated by a first person, everybody's always in a particular circumstance that they're trying to work out a problem and they're very focused on that and you you get the emotion of the book hopefully from as i as i've been saying from the music of the prose that it's delivered in mm-hmm. it's kind of giving you as much information as the positive content of the sentences right well i think the 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 prose is is so wonderful and so stripped down um talk about is this something that does this pour off the tip of your pen <laughs> i wish that it <laughs> Wish that it did. There's a lot of was a lot of work in in editing. I mean, I work, as I think I said earlier, from you know I move forward incrementally uh, rather than writing a draft and going back and editing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So, the work every day is 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 half editing what I've written the day before and half trying to move forward. And you know, and then I'll come back across the whole chapter probably eight or ten times before it's all done. So. A lot of it does does feel like scoring, you know, mm-hmm. like scoring of of, of music, that um, requires me to kind of quiet my mind enough to hear it. So I, I, I tend to, I have to kind of really let go of a lot of distractions in my own life to be able to work. Uh, so I always work in the morning, and you know, no no internet or or. Uh, phone or email or anything like that before, you know, before I'm done working, I have to sort of try to eliminate as much distraction as possible to let these quieter voices kind of speak through me. Do you listen to music when you write? Uh, not when I'm actually writing. Um, I, um, I do listen to music that the characters are listening to, particularly in this book, because there's a lot of music. Mm-hmm. So... Before, like you know, when I'm starting the writing day, I'll kind of listen to some of the music that's that I'm dealing with uh, at that time to kind of put me in the spirit of it. But I can't actually write with music on. When you were writing Michael, who's kind of the central character, you're having the most fun. So talk about writing Alec and, and uh, the sister. To how you know did you keep yourself engaged with them as much as Michael? 
it's a family story, and so each of those characters are impacted by what's happened with their father and then with trying to cope with the struggles that their brother is going through. So they do, their chapters do tend to revolve a little around Michael, but to me it's it's just, as with any character, what I'm trying to do is really get as far as I can into the texture and nuance of their, of the experience of being in their body and mind and spirit. And that's the task. I, I do write these chapters in a sense, for, for, because I'll be working for several months on a given chapter, as its own entity. Mm-hmm. And it has to have its own weight and something within it that compels me to get that scene out, right? I mean, it's not just instrumental to move the book forward. I I want to be... The, the scenes that I've picked to give are all ones that are of importance to the character at that moment. And so I'm just trying to live inside that mind for the duration of the writing. And then, and then I step back and think, okay, well, here the readers come this far with this character what do we now need to know? So what would the next character be kind of narrating? I, I think um, the time frame that this plays out through from the 60s through the present is I, it really important and really interesting because at, in the early days, uh, we talk about uh, how uh, the kids were got spanked. And I thought that that was... <laughs> That was such an interesting relic uh, of 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 yesteryear that uh-huh. when you bring it back, oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I guess I, it's funny. That's that's I, something I hadn't thought about. I think it was sort of standard. You know, it certainly happened in my family, but uh, it just it, it it seemed like just simply a form of of sort of light discipline. You know, I don't know. I didn't right. Yeah, something I haven't thought about actually. Yeah, well, I I think that that you capture that really well because the, the way the characters pass off these days, you just you know it's like a red alert or something. <laughs> but then it was well, you know, it's kind of like uh, you know go to your room or something <laughs> is these days. Yeah. Um. What when you um were writing the the parts that were from. The father's point of view. I'm, I think those are really powerful and eerie. Uh, capturing that kind of uh, the the prose in particular in those is just stuff that you want to read aloud. And it, but it's really very dark too. And so, um, did you find yourself? Uh, I mean, I mean, did you worry about yourself as you were writing these? I mean, uh, um, well, no, I don't think I worried about myself. It it did require there are several sections of the book, and that was one of them that did require e- even sort of greater solitude. So I was actually um, in Berlin for a semester, and I had a lot of time on my own to write without any real distractions. And it, the, I think those sort of deep dives and, and, and the, one of the concluding scenes with Michael and Alec required me to go further and, in a sense, really withdraw from the world in order to, I guess, you know, bear some of the, the difficulty of the, that material and also because it was difficult to be a kind of punctual person with the rest of the world while I was doing that. I really needed to, in a sense, do a sort of method acting mm. um, for the writing of that part. You know, and there, there's, there's, a, there's mortality is the question. I mean, he's a man facing his own mortality. And so that puts the, the everything that's being represented in a kind of... Um, hallowed light because he's both seeing the intense value of things but also already in retrospect anticipating his own death. I think that the story arc of this is amazing. Was this something that came out of the prose? I mean, a lot of it obviously I think comes out of the prose just at the very micro level. Mm -hmm. But I, it seems to me that some of it, that prose had to be planted in some kind of soil somewhere. Uh, well, I mean, I think the funny thing is that in the writing of it, more so than anything I've written before, I had the sensation of as though I were 
painting a, a landscape painting, but that my nose was only an inch from the canvas, so I couldn't really see, you know, the perspective-wise. It was wow. like I was, like, nose to the canvas trying to see the whole thing because because I was always, in a sense, being a pointillist. You know what I mean? I was always in one looking at one section. and I, So I didn't really know how it was going to read. I thought maybe I was totally crazy and that it wouldn't make any sense as a, as a, as a complete narrative. So it... Um, Pointillism with sentences as your points. Yeah, yeah. And so it wasn't until I, you know, had a couple of readers, you know, friends read probably when I was maybe three years into it sort of say no okay you know it's okay like keep going it makes it makes some sense that I thought okay well you know I don't have to worry about the reader's sense of forward motion or how the time is working or whether it's coherent so uh yeah one of the things that surprised me most is people saying you know like well I you know I was just reading through the night or whatever I was like wow I didn't I I certainly didn't think I'd written a page turner Mm -hmm. you know um but, yeah, so I, I didn't have a lot of perspective on it, and I didn't have an outline. Uh, so it was it was a pretty organic process. Of course, once I got an editor and we, we discussed some of the things, I had a little more perspective and, and you know, kind of played with pieces. But, but the whole was pretty much there. One of the, the themes of this that Michael wants to deal with in his endless pursuit of a thesis is the idea of intergenerational haunting. Um, And he looks for this in the musical forms adopted by black people, whether it's spirituals all the way to Detroit techno. And the thing that's so wonderful about this is that he is in the grip of his own intergenerational haunting that I think is a little more common, which is, you know, you, you, the, what the shadow that your family casts on you? Yeah, no, it's uh, there are both of those themes kind of running through it, and it's part of his frenetic energy and kind of intellectual hunger that comes out of his his enthusiasm for music is to, in some sense, uh, figure out how and why historically music can be such a powerful transmitter of experience, traumatic experience, sadness, trauma, and yet still have such unbelievable joy and release and excitement in it. And I think, I mean, to bring it to the very concrete, it's one of the things that I've always loved about bands like New Order, that if you listen to their lyrics, it's pretty (laughs) pretty dark. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, things are not going well. Uh, and yet the music is hard not to move to. Mm-hmm. So there's this, there's, there's, a, there's a twinning of the energy and desolation that's always been very compelling to me. And so he, he, he's the character in the book that sort of personifies that more than anyone. And that was one of the things I was trying to capture. If you run fast enough, the night will be shorter. <laughs> That's a great line. I, I heard that. Uh, uh, I, I think, too, that early on when John, the father, is looking at, at Michael, his, his son, and, and worrying, I think that this is such a, a beautiful capture of how parents, knowing their own flaws— can look for them in their children and whether or not they're there, maybe there's a sense of, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy and whether that is that a, a genetic destiny or an environmental one. Yeah, well, that's one of the moments where I'm sort of getting at these conundrums or uh, that I think are common in family life where the very things that excite you and might give you joy have this undercurrent because they may portend something something darker. So he sees that his son's incredibly inventive and alive and has this remarkable energy, and yet he has this intuition that that energy is being driven out of him, is, is, is something that's 
could overtake him. In some ways, now that I think about it, I hadn't thought about this way before, but it's almost what most of the book is about is how how family members see the people they love and the reader's experience is of seeing both sides of that gaze Mm -hmm. between siblings and between parents. And so you as the reader are moving in and out of the differing and matching but missing perceptions. We're triangulating uh, across a, a, a third or fourth dimension that the characters themselves are unable to grok. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's one of the great pleasures of this book. And that's, I think, uh, in a sense, now that you say that, that's where the the plot, as it were, lies. That's where the draw lies. That's where the, the truly, and I would agree with those uh, estimations, page-turning aspect of this book lies is to see, to it's not, to see how they're going to see. It's to see what you're going to see of them. So it's an interesting kind of uh, uh, telescopic experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, I think whenever you write, you don't, uh, you don't know what anybody else's, however much you are trying to create an experience for them, you, you just don't know what it's going to be until, uh, until it gets out in the world and you have readers. So it's, uh, it's, that's part of, the, part of the strangeness of, of now, having it out in the world. Well, two, on the other hand, while readers are enjoying this kind of uh, aerial flyover perspective of the family history and seeing all these different textures and those relationships, we're also looking back on our own. You cannot help but do that. And that can be, depending on what your family situation is, a comforting or reassuring or a mildly terrifying experience. Yeah. Well, that's the part that I was saying earlier that that is, I, I found that, you know, in, in, in people um, who, you know, readers that I've met so far is that it, it does seem to occasion um, people's backward glances at their own experience of, of family. I think that's that's the uh, a form of connection that I hadn't necessarily anticipated just because part of that experience of being so close to the canvas is thinking well this is so particular to these characters and in some cases their obsessions are very particular um so there's uh I, there's something sort of encouraging to me that it's through specificity that people can actually derive something more, something broader, something more general. So if you go far enough into a particular experience, there's something in the form of it mm-hmm. that allows people to see themselves, even if the particulars that they are of their own families are obviously, you know, going to be very different. Right. The more granular you get, the the it's you get a better description of reality if you're using quantum theory as opposed to Newtonian yes, mechanics. Yes, <laughs> so that's you're right. you're going for a new uh, quantum uh, theory form of writing here. This is these. In fact, uh, having just spoken with somebody about this, this is a, these sentences are like quantum waves. The idea now is that there are these fields that exist in the universe and where they rise and fall that we'll see when we look at them for a second, that's when we freeze them into a particle of some kind. And these sentences are essentially the same thing. They they create the fields and we look at them and regard them for a second and go, okay, that's what's happening in the book and that's also what's happening in me. Mm-hmm. Well, from from your lips to the, to the reader's ears, <laughs> I'll take it. A uh, lot of drugs in this book. None of them illegal. <laughs> No, I guess that's true. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly one of the one of the things that, um, again, more in retrospect than I think consciously, I could see I was doing was particularly again with the character of Michael creating scenes and the form, particularly the psych intake form. That, I love that scene where the list of the drugs, yeah, his experiences underneath them are just wonderfully wrought. Um, well, so yeah, because I think there's there's something so. Uh, cold and clinical and also sometimes creepy about the way that modern biological psychiatry carves up our experience into categories and, you know, with drugs that are sometimes certainly effective and sometimes aren't. And people often have long, you know, agons with uh, which drugs they're on and, you know, how it's going and, and, um, 
family members trace, you know, their own loved ones kind of rising and falling on these things. And so in, in a way, I was trying to create a discourse and a, and a way of experiencing all that language as something other than just objective. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, it, it's one, one lands onto the world. And so Michael, by parodying it and really doing a sort of send-up of that world while still being someone who is subject to that kind of attention from psychiatrists and needs drugs to get by because sure. of the severity of his condition. It's a form, however, ultimately, you know, he can't change the, the current of the language, but a sort of talking back to biological psychiatry. I love the way that the pieces of Michael's life are put together. I mean, with Callie and Bethany, I think that bringing these relationships in and the way you describe them and, and uh, evolve them within his life and then the way we see them too through the lenses of his siblings and his mother is really interesting. It's a very uh, a prismatic vision, I think, of how people relate to one another and how we see the intimate relationships of our siblings and parents on on all sides. Yeah, well, I mean, I think who doesn't want the people you love the most to be happy? And so often what that means is imagining them happily with someone else, finding a person to be with, a partner or a spouse. And so you can get attached to the prospect or the hope that someone they meet is going to, you know, it's going to work out. They're going to be with someone. And I think with a parent, it can sometimes be they really need it to happen so that they can relieve themselves of the worry that something's (laughs) deeply wrong, right? So that dynamic certainly plays out across the book. And that's one of the things that I think I've I've mentioned this a couple of times, but but we're not always the people that our family wants us to be, certainly. And yet we can't escape the influence of our family's desires for who we should be. Mm -hmm. So that space between what we become and what our family's wishes for us are, I think is deeply shaping of of how we live our lives. And so that's some of what I was dramatizing too. It's emotional orbital mechanics. (laughs) Right. We're full of scientific metaphors today. (laughs) Sorry about that. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. They're just usually beyond me. Um, I think that, is it uh, Margaret who makes the observation uh, about uh, sexuality being kind of a spectrum, I think, uh, along those lines? And I think that you do a good job of playing those nuances out really nicely across the way the cultures change, the way the people change, and the characters. That's a really wonderful uh, piece of writing in terms that I think is beyond the sentence and beneath the story it's somewhere in the uh, the fog out of which everything coalesces mm-hmm. well yeah there's it's certainly the book the time frame of the book from the late 70s into the sort of early aughts it's certainly one in which obviously we as a culture transformed our understanding about sexuality and Alec, the younger brother, is gay, and the you know the family often. I mean, he sort of poked fun at, not not in a homophobic way, but I mean, he's the kind of because he's the youngest, he's kind of the you know the butt of many of the jokes of the siblings, and yet you know it's the 1980s when he was a teenager. We're not exactly uh, lacking in homophobia, <laughs> so you do see his progress from being a kid who was confused and worried and then a young adult who's who's sort of uh, trying to find intimacy in that world you know that that sort of emotional storyline is 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 part of it too i i think the key here is that this book is about the both change and lack of change and i think it really captures that aspect of a family in that there are there seems to be something really essential at the core of it yet there's something that constantly changes around the edges yeah well family that's like that's family life i mean there's an unalterable fact of our existence 
it's the first and primary experience of love and of loss. And I, I did, I did want to write a portrait of a family in which the love and the attempt to care was central. Because in a strange way, I almost, I don't feel like I see that. I don't, you know, it's not. We're we're inundated with stories about the destruction of families and the violence within them. And it's not that this is a, you know, an all happy family, God knows, given what they're going through. But the intentions are loving and the drama comes in what happens when those intentions run up against circumstances that they can't alter. And so you then encounter pain. You're just forced to encounter the pain of a loved one's suffering. I think that's, it's not something that's easy to abide with. And as a result of that, there's often more suffering because people are trying to run away from or close over or ignore or tamp down the suffering of other people close to them because it's intolerable to to them, right? I mean, it's intolerable to any of us to see people that we love suffer. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to just as a writer be with that, be in the space of that without judging these people. Um, They fail each other at times. They, they uh, save each other at times, but over the course of years, the drama is that they have to keep doing it. I've been speaking with Adam Hazlitt. His new novel is Imagine Me Gone. Thank you for joining me, Adam. Pleasure to be here. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.